The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth, for all his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Well, this morning we're going to be thinking about the power of positive thoughts and how they can build your community. Now, I don't know about you, but I prefer optimistic people, don't you? I mean, don't you prefer optimistic people to pessimistic people? If you had the choice between hanging out with Tigger or Eeyore, you'd go with Tigger every time. You like nice people, right? People who are happy, who think about positive things. It's not just us, though. We've actually found that even in the upper echelons of academia, we've got uh, magazines like the Harvard Business Review who said... Uh, If you have optimistic, positive vibes, then you're probably going to have a more successful company than one that is stress-driven. So we are a people who, by nature, like positive thoughts. Uh, In fact, I was once visiting a a, a lady who was uh, at a church that I was at, and when I was at her house, I noticed that she had wall pictures framed and hung on the walls with positive thoughts and pillows with nice little positive quotes filled in. Uh, She had even little notes that were on her desk that had positive sayings so that everybody that she wrote a note to, it came front-loaded with a nice happy message. Uh, My favorite was uh, this little picture that was on the door as she walked out. It said, hey little fighter, soon things will be a little bit brighter. I, I was happier after I read it. I felt better. Um, You can immerse yourself in positive vibes if you want to. Uh, You know that we live in a culture that provides you all kinds of ways that you can do that. 
Uh, You can listen to music like Kelly Clarkson, who says, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Or or you can listen to positive motivational speakers like Tony Robbins, who will tell you that you can change your life, that you can have uh, basically whatever you want and be exactly what you wish. Or you can sit under Joel Osteen's preaching, who says things like, when you have a positive mindset, you can't be defeated, or nothing is impossible to a willing heart. Oh, I'm sorry, that last one was actually a fortune cookie. But could you tell the difference, though? Anyway, this morning, we're back in our Looking at Jesus series in Isaiah 8 to 21, 9, 8 to 21, where we're taking a look at another community of people who sought to build their community on happy thoughts and positive vibes while ignoring the Word of God. Now, if you're just joining us, uh, we're preaching through the first third of Isaiah, where God has promised that he would bring a future anointed king who would save his people. Uh, We actually created this handy little uh, outline insert in your bulletin just to catch you up to speed as far as what's going on with all these crazy names that are listed through our text. Uh, But this tells you about the relationships that are on display. What you'll find, though, here is that it's about 730 B.C., give or take, and Israel had split from Judah 200 years before this takes place. And they made, Israel had made Samaria its capital. So Isaiah, in our text, he's going to talk about Samaria or Jacob, Manasseh, or Ephraim. Uh, All of those are in reference to Israel, the northern kingdom, with Judah in the south. Now, the reason I believe that he picks out these different names to describe Israel is because he's reminding us that Judah and Israel actually come from a long line of fighters. Uh, You probably remember this as you look at some of these names, but there is a history in Israel of the people of God being a fighting kind of people. So you'll remember that Jacob the great man, the forefather uh, of the nation of Israel who became Israel, actually fought with God. That's why he didn't ever walk straight again, right? Uh, You'll remember also that after that, uh, we had uh, children, uh, Joseph and Judah and his brothers, who fought uh, as Joseph uh, became one of the highest roles in Egypt. There was a fighting relationship there. And then later, of course, We find in our story here today that Israel and Judah have split because they are fighting at at odds with one another. So the kingdom of Israel has joined up with King Rezin of Syria. And he has joined up with him against Judah. And they're fighting against Judah so that Israel has sort of joined the nations against one of his brother tribes and nations. Ahaz rejected God. We saw that in Isaiah 7. And he looked to Assyria, Assyria with an A, for help from Israel and Syria with an S. And they did all of this because they were looking self-confidently to themselves rather than God. Now, there are two things that I want you to remember this morning as we're looking at this text. Two things that I think will help you understand it. First, there is an irony about this text and where it's located Because God just promised in the first seven verses of this chapter that he would send the Prince of Peace to bring universal peace uh, to the people uh, of this world. And yet, here we find that it is nothing but fighting. And second, God is actually speaking to Judah, but about Israel. So that God is expecting that as Judah is listening on on what's happened to Israel, that they will have some kind of self-reflection that this has something to do with them. 
I'd encourage you to read this story with the same kind of self-reflection. That God really has given us this story to say something to us. Now, this morning, I'm sure Judah would have been happy to hear of God's relentless anger against their enemy brother Israel. You'll notice three times in our text, there's this refrain that is repeated in verse 12, 17, and 21. For all of this, God says, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And sometimes God, God's hand is lifted out and stretched out for redemption like when he saved Israel out of Egypt, but sometimes in judgment like we find here. It is a relentless judgment of God. But these verses, they warned Judah and us about building a community on misdirected hopes. See, we'll see that self-reliance creates communities of self-seeking cannibals, while Christ-reliance creates local churches of self-giving disciples. Let me say that again. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to see that self-reliance creates communities of self-seeking cannibals, while Christ-reliance creates local churches of self-giving disciples. We're going to see this first in, in verses 8 to 12, where you'll see that Proud hearts with positive vibes hope in the wrong thing. Proud hearts with positive vibes hope in the wrong thing. Now as you look at verses 8 to 9, they tell us that God had sent word to Israel. Probably through the prophets uh, Hosea and Amos. And and they had given the northern kingdom of Jacob or Israel a, a message. And God said that he would show no mercy because Israel has not repented of their sins. God sent discipline after discipline, but they never looked to God. And God, he never writes checks with his mouth that his arm can't cash and judgment is coming. Now verse 9 says the root of the problem that Israel had was this. Look there in verse 9. You notice it's that they have proud and arrogant hearts. Proud and arrogant hearts. Now, if you're wondering what is the heart, the the heart was really the seat or the core of who a person was. It was where their mind, their will, their emotions, their affections resided. And so here it says that at the heart of who they were, they were proud and they were arrogant. Now, you might be wondering, what does that mean? Well, verse 10, actually, it's so subtle you might miss it, but here we get a a fascinating look into the window of the souls of these proud hearts and what they're believing at the core of who they are. Now, when I, I look at this, when you look at this, it might not sound so bad, but just look at what they say. Verse 10, he says, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Now, a modern translation would be, we're going to come back stronger than ever and rebuild with better materials than before. So, for instance, sycamores are not as nice or valuable as cedars are. Uh, In other words, they're they're going to kind of build up from where they are and things are going to get better. What doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Now, this sounds really hopeful. I mean, this is really hopeful. In fact, in the wake of the toppling of the Twin Towers on 9-11, we had, true, we had two senators, Tom Daschle and John Edwards, who both actually quoted this very verse to talk about how we were going to restore ourselves and come back better than ever. It was an optimistic expectation that the USA would not only survive but thrive. 
I mean, it sounds kind of like the sort of thing that you would hope that a, a leader would say and that he would thunder amidst diversity and the heart that you would want from other members of your team. But context matters. And God's not feeling optimistic about their optimism, right? I mean, just catch what he says in verses 11 to 12. This is God's response. But the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezin, the leader of Syria, against him, and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel. I thought they were friends with open mouth. And for all this anger, his, for all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. See, they rejected God's word in Israel and sought their own solutions. They did not listen to God's word. They did not trust or obey him. And God turned Israel's self-reliant solutions, being Syria, into a greater problem than they started with. And God's hand is still stretched out against them. Now just think about this carefully. God turned the hopes of their proud hearts on their heads by turning their dreams into nightmares. Their hopefulness displayed a dangerous self-reliance that God would not allow to continue. Now, don't miss this. This is important. Not all hope floats. Some hope sinks straight to the bottom. Not all hope is good and leads to happiness. Some hope leads to sorrow. Israel's lying prophets basically said, I'm okay and you're okay. We'll pull ourselves out of this and there's always something better just around the corner. All while rejecting God's word to God's people. Now catch this. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, false hopes can still be dangerous and even deadly. See, today, you need to be asking yourself, what is it that I'm hoping in? What is it that I am relying in, that I'm trusting with my life and my future Where is your confidence located today? What is anchoring your soul? Did you know that sometimes God graciously turns our dreams into nightmares? It can happen. Maybe you've experienced it. Have you ever maybe been in a relationship or known someone in a relationship that it was a a romantic relationship where you knew that that person claimed to love Jesus, but they looked at their relationship and it looked like it was a kind of relationship that did not honor Christ. And it looked like that the longer that went on, the further that both of them seemed from Christ. And all of a sudden, it almost looked like the relationship exploded. And you were like, how in the world did that happen? It looked like it was just like off to the races and then it just dissolved. Could it be that Perhaps sometimes God blows up relationships and causes our dreams to become nightmares so that he can give us a better dream, something better than what we've been dreaming of, which is himself. Maybe uh, this morning you are one of those who is a parent of a teenager who all of a sudden doesn't like God or church. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, I've known parents that Uh, I study that are great parents and their kids, they've had a kid or kids who haven't loved Jesus. We're not promised that good parenting 
equals Christian children. That's not what we're promised. That's not a promise of the gospel. It is a good gift and a good thing that we raise our children to love Christ, but ultimately, we need a miracle that we can't do ourselves, that we can't generate ourselves. We need God Himself to save our children. We need Him. And could it be that maybe sometimes, I've seen this, we have children who come to church and parents come with them, and then one day they show up and they're like, I don't know what happens. My teenage kid doesn't love God anymore. And could it be just maybe that for too long in our homes, not all the time, but sometimes we have had a self-reliant home. And slowly but surely, our kids have been watching parents who follow Jesus, but in the home, they don't see a distinctive Christianity about the way their mom and dads are living their lives. And slowly, an erosion of faith because they have not been trusting and listening to and following God's Word. I think that this could even happen on a large scale in denominations where they become self-reliant and God actually turns against them for the good of those who might turn and repent to the Lord. I think about, for instance, the, the PCUSA and other denominations who decades ago turned from believing in the Word of God and its sufficiency. They said, we're not just going to hold to the Word of God anymore. We're going to try to create truth as a community. And then a decade later, what we find is, is that they are actually redefining marriage to look just like the world. And here we are a decade after that, and we find that the church is, is actually plummeting in membership. It's dying. And could it be a movement of God where He is actually drawing people out of that body and, and against a, a congregation or a group of congregations that have chosen not to hear His Word? See, God will sometimes graciously turn our dreams into nightmares to save us from an optimistic self-confidence. God doesn't want something from us. He wants something for us. The disasters of this life should empty us of false hopes and fill us with hope in God. But there's a second thing I think we see here in this text. Notice that God sent disaster to drive His people to seek Him. That's what we find in these verses, in verses 13 to 17. Now when you get to verse 13, I I find a clarification of what's going on here. Notice what he says. He explains why Israel's hopes were dashed. He says this, God says, the people, in verse 13, did not turn to Him who struck them, being God, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. Just think about it. Israel is God's people. They face the hostility of the world turning upon their heads as judgment for looking to the nations and their gods for help. Things got worse and worse and they still refused to turn to God. Now I'm not saying that all disaster is because we have been disobedient. We live in a broken world. But But do you believe that no disaster or difficulty comes because of our sin? I don't think the Bible would say that. I think the Bible would say that every difficulty that comes upon us should cause our eyes to be lifted up from ourselves and our world around us to the God who is sovereign over us. See, things got worse and worse and they still refused to look and inquire. Inquire of the Lord of hosts. Now this word inquire, it's an interesting word that he uses here. Uh, It's a word that means to seek with care. So as we look here in in Isaiah 19, the same word is used where God's people were inquiring. They were inquiring after all kinds of things, just not God. They inquired of idols, sorcerers, mediums, necromancers. But nowhere, nowhere do we see that they sought with care their covenant 
God, catch this, Yahweh of heavenly armies. They looked to little Syria to protect them from Assyria when Yahweh, their covenant God of heavenly armies, was never called or contacted. What a failure on the people of God not to look to Him for help that only He could provide. I mean, you can hear the heart of God here. He struck them so that they would not so that they would turn to Him and seek Him. I love what Alec Moyer says here. The only way to flee from God is to flee to Him. To turn to Him. You you run to God, Satan will flee from you, God flees to you. Here what we find is, before repentance, wrath will melt and mercy triumphs. But don't miss this, Christian. I believe that you and me, every Sunday, come and gather with the people of God because it is a a calling, a weekly calling for you and me to turn and seek God afresh. All of us need that. All of us need a daily, a weekly repentance, a daily, a weekly revival before God. Don't you? I had a a friend recently who said that he needs revival every Sunday. Uh, He he can almost not make it to the next Sunday before he needs revival, where he needs to be revived by God's Word and God's people, to be encouraged by them, to be lifted up. I, I feel that. I feel that constant need for revival. I think that you might think everybody's got their stuff together here this morning. The reality is I'm guessing that most, if not all, need to be revived by the Word of God. There is none here, I don't think, that has shown up thinking, man, I'm killing it this week. I don't even know if I need this. No, we've shown up because we need help. We need God's Word to do what only God's Word can do. We need the encouragement that only God's people can bring. We need revival weekly. See, the call to Christianity is at first to repent of your sins and to put your faith and confidence in Christ and not everything else that's calling for our attention and confidence. Our confidence is in Christ. But don't miss this. We don't just repent and believe on the first step. It is a call to a life of repentance and faith. Weekly, daily, sometimes moment by moment. Isn't that you? Don't you sense in your heart this, this desire, this proneness to wonder? Don't you feel it so prone to leave the God you love? Like, I, I sense that. And I need others to come alongside me and to lift me up. I need more than, catch this, cute quotes and anecdotes to lift my soul. I need to hear from God Himself. I need to hear and respond afresh to God's life-giving, transforming Word. It is so easy to become convinced that both my greatest problems are outside and that my greatest solutions are inside. Problems are out there. Solutions are in here. And the world says that. I mean, have you ever seen the size of the self-help book section? I'm like, I've tried it all. Myself ain't helping. (laughs) I need something else, right? I love what Dave Harvey says in his marriage book, When Sinners Say I Do. He says, after being married, I I woke up one morning next to the worst of sinners and realized it was me. See, the reality is that it's quite the opposite. It's not that the problems are all out there and the solutions are all in here. My greatest problem is actually internal according to the Scriptures. It's sin. It's self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And my great solution is actually outside of myself. 
with God and His Son Christ and His Spirit. Just take note of the tragedy of Israel along with Judah. They thought the biggest disaster was Assyria, and they didn't realize that there was a greater disaster on the horizon. God is a greater disaster for hearts not hoping in God. Their failure to humble themselves before God's word and God's discipline meant that they faced an even greater disaster than the enemies all around them. The Lord of hosts cut them off. You can only hardly miss the devastation of verses 14 to 17. Just look there. God's loving compassion. The great compassion of God that we sing about, that we delight in, that we hope in. Notice here that that compassion turns away from them in His anger, and it is still not satisfied. Just look, verse 14. So it says, he says, the Lord cut off from Israel, head and tail. Palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray. And those who guide this people have been leading them astray. And those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Verse 17, Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on the fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer. And every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out Still. Now notice the head represented the elders, those spiritual leaders in the community. And the tail uh, represented those lying prophets who said, hey, things are going to get better, better soon. Just hold in there. And even as Hosea and Amos prophesied, the Lord will show no mercy for your unrepentant sin. They were saying, it is too going to be okay. These guys don't know what they're talking about. But it's not just the head and the tail. God holds the whole nation in between accountable for being led astray by false teaching. Did you notice that even the the fatherless, the orphans, and the widows, who God cares for everywhere in the Bible, cannot move God to compassion and His anger still burns? I mean, what what a horrible, scary, fearsome indictment. I think this is just important really quickly to remind us all. Healthy spiritual leadership still matters. Healthy spiritual leadership still matters. You need a church and you need leaders who lead you to hope in God and to listen to His Word, which climaxes in God's Son, Jesus Christ. You need godly leaders who remind you week in and week out that your ultimate and great war, the battle that you are waging, is not ultimately against flesh and blood, but about spiritual evil and high places. That your greatest enemy is not an enemy that you can see and touch, but an enemy that is on attack of your heart, that is seeking to cause you to believe lies about who God is and who you are in relationship to God. A spirit that would love if you do not know God for you to believe that God is just fine with that. Or that if you do love God, that you would not believe that all that God has said is true about you is actually true. You need leaders who are pressing you towards the reality that your greatest problem is actually an unseen enemy and your greatest solution is actually your great unseen God. That's what you need. 
We need people who drive us not towards little sayings that make us feel better as we walk out a door, but the actual word of God that breathes life into hearts that are dead and that breathes more life and energy into hearts that have trusted Christ for salvation. We need leaders who do that. See, the reality is that your church will likely shape you more than you shape it. I have a lot of uh, friends who tell me that they go to different churches and you know, they're like, yeah, we don't like the teaching or the doctrine, but we love the coffee and the music. And so we felt like, you know, hey, we could maybe change the doctrine and keep the, like, really good music and the coffee. And I'm like, mm. you know, I think that actually you've got that way turned around. I'm not sure that's, like, actually biblical. And what I've found is, as I've watched them over years attending those kinds of churches, uh, they always thought that they could reshape the church, but the church has always reshaped them more than they've reshaped it. Your your church and your community and the leadership, they are going to shape you and your lives and what you value and whether or not you listen to God or whether or not you are listening to the world around you. See, here, Israel did not turn back to the God who struck them. Now, you might think a community of people who are white-knuckling positive vibes in their heart, right? You would think that would be a really happy place, wouldn't you? Like, wouldn't you want to go to a place where everybody's like, hey, it's going to be good, it's going to be great, everybody's going to be happy, right? Right? That's not exactly what we find here. Catch what happens when the Care Bears' hopes fail them. No, this is violent. They turn in on each other in cannibalism. That's right. It gets ugly. That's the episode you never watch. But look at this. Third, God's wrath turns optimism into cannibalism. God's wrath turns optimism into cannibalism. Verses 18 to 21. Now, just to help you understand what's happening in these verses, uh, as you read verses 18 and 19, you'll, you'll notice that there, there's a fire that's raging. I think there are actually two fires simultaneously going. So, first, wickedness burns like fire. And Isaiah has already described wicked people as the briars and thorns, who here are consumed by their sin. In other words, this is the boomerang effect of sin. Uh, you, you throw sin out, you sin, it goes out. But notice these false hopes that they've been putting self-reliant confidence in actually become fuel for the fire that comes back and consumes them. In fact, God created the world, that's what I believe, in such a way that to disobey Him will bring disaster upon yourself because it's the way that God has created the world that honoring Him and obeying Him works. Sinning does not. Sinning brings judgment upon you. But notice the second cause of that fire in verse 19. It is the will of God on display and the wrath of God against wickedness. In other words, it doesn't just turn out that things don't work out. There's an active stirring up of God, of enemies against one another. And here, even in the people of God, the people of God against one another, Israel and Judah. In other words, this is what's happening. We're told in verse 19 that it, it grows so bad, the wrath of God, that it works out in this. Verse 19, no one spares another. That's the, the working and exercising of the wrath of God here. No one is sparing one another. And when we look away from God to seek other things, and we put our confidence in, in other things other than God, confidence that we should only have in Him and His Son Christ, did you know that we actually become less human for it. And so do the people around us in our own eyes. We were made to be image bearers of God. 
And if we are not worshiping God as we ought and obeying Him and serving Him, then all of a sudden humanity loses that dignity in our eyes and our hearts and we no longer see ourselves or others as created in God's image and we will treat them as less than human, less than those bearing the image of God. We will treat people as commodities. People as products to be used for ourselves rather than image bearers of God who ought to draw us into worship of God. That's what happens here. People who become a means to an end rather than those humans created in the image of God. And in verses 20 to 21, we find Isaiah utilizing the image of cannibals to describe the way their relationships look. They slice to the right and to the left, taking their pound of flesh from one another, but never being satisfied. In fact, we find the brother tribes of Israel Manasseh and Ephraim, those sons of Joseph that represent the northern kingdom, we find that these sons of Joseph are actually now devouring one another, these brothers. But they're still hungry. Apparently, Ephraim wasn't like, you know, providing enough sustenance. And they're like, I'm still hungry. And so he says, Well, what other brothers are out there? Well, Judah. Well, I'll eat Judah too, <laughs> right? And so here we find that still hungry, they turn and take a slice out of Judah. Don't miss this. A community built on positive vibes and self-confidence that refuses to seek God will eventually turn in on itself in cannibalism. See, Israel turned on Judah for self-preservation and out of desperation. Now, this was the warning to Judah. Remember, coming about Israel. But this was a warning to Judah as much as the description of Israel. And Paul actually warns the church in a very similar way of how fleshly self-confidence can result in cannibalism. That's right. Even as believers who have the Spirit of God, we need to watch out for our hearts who still can fall into fleshly uh, tendencies. Uh, Paul says this in Galatians. You'll remember where he talks about the difference between living in the flesh and the spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And do you remember what he says in Galatians 5.15? He reminds them about living in the flesh. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. That's cannibalism, right? See, when our confidence and our hopes shift from God to ourselves, or anything else, we will use people for what we can get out rather than what we can give. Now, what does this cannibalism look like? I I think it's a helpful question to stop and ask, because I know there's like that, that's really gross factor, the ick factor. But what is the, the sort of parallel analogous to? What are examples of what it looks like when we're biting and devouring one another? Well, I think that Paul gives us some uh, examples through evidences of the flesh, but But think about some of these practical ways that we might see it. You know, you see it with the way that sometimes men will use and abuse women, right? Have you ever heard somebody talk about a guy who's out on the prowl, right? What's he looking for? He's looking for a woman. Now, is he looking to bless her, to honor her as a creation of God, to lift her up and esteem her in the way that God has created her? Is that what he's doing when he's out on the prowl? No, he's out for meat, right? He's looking for what he can get out, not what he can put in. He's not looking for how he can bless, but what he can take. That's not the way that God has created us. Or maybe uh, you've even seen godly men who've had discussions about important theological issues that maybe they treat as being 
more important than they should, and they've gotten angry about them? Like when Jesus is coming back, like godly men getting in a fight about theology that really isn't central to who we are. And we see the flesh come out, and, and you see fangs, theological fangs come out, right? Ready to eat. Or maybe you know uh, women in your life who have, um, who have exhibited some of these cannibalistic tendencies. Um, I, we have lots of godly women in our congregation. I live with a godly woman. Um, and so uh, I get experiences all the time of, of what it looks like, you know, for us all to have uh, certain things that we do. You know, sometimes you might see godly women talking about things like, you know, whether or not a woman should work. And, and then all of a sudden starting, in a sense, to kind of judge someone for what they have chosen to do under God, even though the Bible doesn't say a woman should work, and Proverbs 31 uh, seems to, like, open the door for, like, a working, a working woman. And yet, then the other side is, is you have some who say women should work, and then you have women who work in the home and have children, and it is a full-time job. I mean, I stay home with my kids, you know, on, like, uh, Friday nights and Saturday mornings, and I'm like, this feels more like work than work, Right? And, and yet you start saying, well, that's not a real job like what I do. You don't bring money home. And all of a sudden you see a fighting that breaks out. We fight about things like education for our kids, right? Like, do you homeschool? Yes. Do you do classical education? Yes. But everybody knows that Christian education is the best way to go, right? And then we find that we have these convictions and these beliefs and we start turning on one another and like getting angry with one another and and all of this is really the flesh coming out the reality is is that God has entrusted us to make godly decisions for our children and we we will have to give an account accountability each individual one of us before Jesus for what we choose to do and so we ought to be encouraging one another and praying for one another that God would bless whatever it is that our our, our friends and, and brothers and sisters have chosen to do there are all kinds of things that we can see that we start to chew on one another rather than encouraging them and blessing them, pouring into them rather than taking out. You know, some people covet other people's stuff and even steal it. That's clear. That's clear cannibalism. You know, some Christians will talk about someone's gifts as lesser or will highlight their weaknesses rather than looking at obvious ways that God's at work in their lives. How many pastors... Have you heard about being chewed up and spit out by congregations? And how many congregations have, I mean, how many pastors have you seen who have actually used congregations to make much of themselves rather than much of God? Congregations can gossip not just about their pastors, but other members and even visitors tearing them down so they can build themselves up. And even some gospel-centered churches seem to compete with other gospel-centered churches talking about their failures rather than what God is doing for his good. And listen up. This appetite for flesh, the flesh of others, begins ultimately with a self-confident heart that believes that that we are right and we are self-reliant and able in and of ourselves to do what we need to do rather than an utter dependence on God and his mercy and grace. See, a self-confident heart is seeking to satisfy its insatiable appetites apart from God and ends in a community of cannibals. Now, what do we need? A Snickers bar is not going to do it. We want to satisfy those deep longings. We need more than that. But don't miss this either. Are you with me? The, the, The cannibalism, this cannibalism isn't merely an accident that happens when people turn away from God. Are you hearing this? 
This cannibalism here in, in Isaiah is actually the active judgment of God on display as a picture of the anger of God that has not been satisfied any more than the restless appetites of a people running aimlessly after the world. Here's the good news. You with me? We need some good news, you know, with all this cannibalism stuff. Here it is. Jesus sacrificed his flesh, that's his body, so that we would not have to chew, so that we don't have to chew on one another anymore. We have Jesus. In fact, Paul, speaking of communion, that they did every time they gathered together in 1 Corinthians 11, it says that when we take communion as a church, the bread and the cup represent Jesus' body and the blood of the new covenant. So that we are literally eating Christ, uh, figuratively. It's a demonstration, but you get what I'm saying. We are actually feasting on Christ, who is the bread of life. Jesus came to deal with God's wrath for sinners, both eternally in hell and in the lake of fire. But also catch this, there's another thing that Jesus came to do. He came to deal with God's wrath on display presently in self-reliant relationships that erupt in hostility. God came in this moment to bring peace amongst us so that so that heaven can, in a sense, be on display in the here and now in our body. So the cure for self-reliance is a Christ dependence that transforms us from self-seeking to self-giving. See, the gospel brings future peace into our present experiences. Now, Paul tells us this very same thing as one of the profound works of the gospel, speaking to non-Jews who are far from God in the church in Ephesus. And if you look in Ephesians two thirteen to 16 you'll see what Paul says the gospel did for those who had hostility amongst one another, Jews and Gentiles. Not just Israel and Judah, the brother tribes, but even enemies far from God. Here's what Ephesians 2, 13-16 says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, catch this, thereby killing hostility. Hostility with God being killed means that we can live in peace with one another. That's a blessing that the gospel brings to you and me in Christ. So catch what this means. The more that we chew on Christ, the the less we will chew on one another. The more we chew on Christ, the less we will chew on one another. See, we must seek Christ as our confident hope if we want peace with God and others. So let me ask you this this morning. Have you been trying to, to fix and reconcile relationships with others? without fixing your eyes on Christ? Have you thought that you can just go with a, I'm sorry, and not prayerfully seek Christ, and that that reconciliation is available to you apart from Christ? It will not work because God loves you too much to allow you to think that there is hope for peace in your marriage, your kids, your friendships, your church, or others, without earnestly seeking Christ for peace that only He can provide. Now, maybe you've been drifting away from Christ and self-reliance, and God wants to revive your hope in Him this morning, reminding you that your hope needs to be centered on the person of Christ and and what He alone can provide. So let me end with some questions that should answer themselves 
and how you can fight the drift towards self-reliance and grow in your confidence and hope in Christ. Here's one. Are you praying sincerely daily? Praising God for His provision in Christ and begging Him for the help with relationships that you need help with? Or have you gradually given up on God and started trusting yourself? And maybe you're, you're this morning thinking about a relationship that you've just given up on. Could it be that like actually you gave up on God before you gave up on that relationship? And it was so subtle, you drifted away so subtly you didn't even notice it? Are you studying God's Word alone? Two, and with others, learning more and more of Christ to pry your your restless heart away from that natural tendency towards self-reliance to a Christ-reliance? Are you you looking to immersing yourself in God's Word with an eye towards Christ so that you can make sure that your, your direction is set right, that it's not set on the things of this world, but it is set on Christ? Maybe you think that you don't need a local church or pastors to help you keep your eyes focused on Christ. And to remind you constantly that, that that ultimate war that you're in is not flesh and blood, but spiritual evil. Maybe this morning you need a church that's going to help you love Christ as you should. Or are you serving your local church? So you have a local church, are you serving your local church? You know, Galatians 5, when it speaks about the freedom that the gospel brings in, uh, what it basically says is not like now you have an opportunity to really get to know yourself. Or to really make yourself known. What he actually says is, you need to actually live in the Spirit, and that is shown through self-giving, sacrificial love. In other words, there's an otherness about the Spirit and the way that He works in and through you. And so this morning, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, do you have a local church that you are serving in, where the Spirit is actually using the gifts that He has given you to bless others and to build up the church, as 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 says. Now that's what God has made you for. That's what he recreated you for in Christ. He caused you to be born again for. is to bring glory to himself through your relationship to himself, his son, and the church. So we understand a local church is the primary place that God has called Christians to serve one another. I think Hebrews would add, and all the more as you see the return of Christ drawing near. See, we're not serving people to be eaten, but to give ourselves but to give ourselves over to them. Uh, I, I love this. Uh, there's this episode of Twilight Zone that me and Malachi were talking about where these aliens come. And they say, we've come to serve you. And everybody's like, well, that's great. We've got like, servant aliens. This is going to be awesome. But what they didn't understand is what they meant was these aliens had come to serve them up as a meal to be eaten. Well, see, we know that the church is actually the, the inverse of that. We haven't come to serve people up for our own appetites, we've actually come to serve others because of who God is. We've come to give because of what we have been given. And, and that's really what you're called to as a believer is to serve others because of how God has served you in Christ. Now, I might be wrong, but I am so grateful for our church. Can I just, I know I say that a lot, but I really am. I can't say it enough. Like, I know that a lot of churches have like this 20-80 rule where like 20% of the people do like 80% of the work, and we for sure have a lot of hard sacrificial servants in our body. But can I say that one uh, week, uh, our elders periodically go through looking for child care workers, so if you're not serving in that way, you should. Uh, but <clears throat> we were going through just trying to find people who weren't serving who could help in child care. And we went through, and like, 
it was like most people were doing one or two or three things, and we were just like, what, what a, a body that we have. And we actually stopped and prayed and just thanked God. We had this great need, but we were just like, we just haven't thanked you, God, for how generous you've been to us in this body. So thank you for being so generous and serving. If you're new, let me just encourage you, like, join that. Find a way to serve others. Here's what I think is going to happen. See, I think that you serve what you love, but I think you also love what you serve. In other words, I think that if you love something, that you're going to serve it. But what you'll find is something happens in your heart. When you start to serve that thing you love, that love grows. But the more that you neglect it, that you don't tend to it, that you don't care for it, the more that you'll find your heart disinterested. And what a horrible thing to be disinterested with, the bride of Christ. Like, we want to pour into her and love her as Christ has loved her. And I believe that God will grow you spiritually for it. So, if you're looking for a place to serve, uh, let me just say, there's some highlights. There are lots of places. You could help Lynn with our hospitality ministry. She always needs help. You can help Natalie and other ladies with the children's ministry. Always need help in children's ministry. Every church does. Everybody, please serve. Uh, we also, um, I'm sure, could use help. Scott Schneider with the greeting ministry. So many ways that you can serve. But if you're looking for a place, let us know. We'd love to find somewhere for you to serve others. Serve others to the glory of God. Let me tell you a little bit of the fruit in closing that you should expect. The Bible tells us there's fruit of actually self-sacrificial love. And I'm just going to give this quickly to you. I don't have a lot of time to dwell here like I want to. But here's what fruit of this kind of love work does. We find first in 1 Timothy 3.13, a saying to deacons who are servants. This is what he says, For those who serve well as deacons, serving, gain a good standing for themselves, and also, catch this, great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? As as they are serving faithfully, their confidence in Christ is a gift that is given to them for their faithful service. And I think that's true for deacons, sure. I think that's also true for other Christians. Not only is it a a gift of more confidence and faith in Christ, second, Ephesians 3.10 says, you might not feel like it when you're taking out the trash after a meal, But I believe that what Ephesians 3.10 says is that angels and demons are actually looking down on you, sacrificially taking that trash out, and spellbound wonder at the way that you are giving yourself to serve others sacrificially in a way that even angels are looking out in spellbound wonder. They are startled by the reconciliatory work of God on display in our little local church that you might think is so unimpressive. Uh, Angels above think it's very impressive. So says Ephesians 3.10. Third, Jesus tells his disciples that when we love each other in these self-sacrificing ways, that it's actually good evangelism. It's, God, it's God's evangelism, uh, evangelistic plan. You'll remember that Jesus served his disciples, washed their feet. And then Jesus said, tell you what, I want you to go and love one another as I have loved you, and by this all men will know that you are my disciples. That's how you're going to know that you're followers of Jesus Christ, is that you are serving and loving them sacrificially. Fourth, Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 tell us this is how the Spirit works through us to build up the church. It says we are sacrificing ourselves for one another. And finally, fifth, we look like Jesus when we do this, who is the ultimate peacemaker in Galatians 6, 1 to 2. We are peacemakers like Christ is when we seek to lay down our lives for others. Let's pray.